This week we're looking at resolution of Macedonia's name dispute with Greece, shock election results in Malaysia, civil unrest brewing in Nicaragua, and a deeper dive into Xi Jinping's Made in China policy. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 27th of July. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. This is the fourth episode of our rapid update, bringing us back up to speed, uh, mainly based around July. Tomorrow we'll be back to the regular scheduled once per week publishing schedule. Now to this week's roundup. First up is Macedonia's name change. Greece and Macedonia have reached a historic agreement to end a 27-year-old name dispute. The dispute over the Macedonian name stems from the end of the Cold War in 1991 with the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. Macedonia broke away under the name the Republic of Macedonia. Greece has been demanding that Macedonia change its name as it saw that the Republic of Macedonia was making potentially a claim on Northern Territory in Greece, which is also called Macedonia, and also the heritage of Greece, in particular, Alexander the Great. In an effort to pressure the Republic of Macedonia, Greece has prevented its ascension into NATO or the European Union. In June, Macedonia basically caved on this and added the geographical qualifier of North Macedonia to its name. Now, this is not technically official, as it needs to go to a referendum, but both parties agree to this potential name change, as long as the Macedonian public also agree through a referendum. Both countries worked quite hard in June to bring this agreement together because there were EU and NATO meetings coming soon after this point where Macedonia wanted to make sure that it had its ducks lined up in a row to start the ascension process. On the 27th of June, following the withdrawal of the Greek veto, the EU approved the start of ascension talks, which are expected to be in 2019, provided certain conditions are met. On the 11th of July, NATO invited Macedonia to begin membership talks, saying the country could join the organization once the naming issue was resolved. Macedonia will become NATO's 30th member state as long as the people sign up to this referendum on the Greek deal. This referendum is planned for the 30th of September this year, and the question is, do you support EU and NATO membership by accepting the deal between Macedonia and Greece? The government of Macedonia has already started trying to promote this idea, while opposition groups that have been built around this idea of Alexander the Great and and Bulgarian heroes as part of the national myth of Macedonia uh, are opposing it strongly. Now to election results in Malaysia. Former Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad has been sworn in as the new Prime Minister of the country, ending 60 years of coalition rule by the Barisan Nasional. This makes him the oldest elected leader in the world at 92, and in the past had ruled for 22 years in a somewhat authoritarian government. The outgoing Prime Minister, Najib Razak, accepted the election results, but is also living under the specter of corruption charges through the movement of money into hidden bank accounts. The new Prime Minister apparently emerged from retirement and joined the opposition out of anger with the corruption scandal that has engulfed the previous government. However, he has been known for a heavy-handed approach in politics in the past, including imprisoning opponent politicians. In an unlikely alliance, the new Prime Minister came together with Anwar Ibrahim, an opposition politician he had previously jailed for corruption and sodomy in the 1990s. However, this was seen at the time as politically motivated. In addition, the new Prime Minister has promised a royal pardon for Mr Anwar. While the new Prime Minister has pledged not to seek revenge on his opponents, it's highly likely that former Prime Minister Razak will come under closer scrutiny. Now on to civil breakdown in Nicaragua. 
President Daniel Ortega is under severe pressure from his people after a series of protests in the country. Citizens first took the streets in early April as the government was seen to be slow to respond to a massive forest fire in the country. This was further emboldened by an attempt to quietly tax retirees' pension checks. These protests spread across the country, and in response, the government has been seen as heavy-handed and have killing their own citizens. President Ortega is the leader of the Sandinistas, or in particular, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, which is a left populist and democratic socialist party. Previously, the party was seen as a voice for the people against previous authoritarian regimes and helped overthrow them. But since then, it has slowly become more authoritarian in nature. For instance, after their first government was eventually defeated in 1990, the Sandinistas ransacked government buildings, taking desks, chairs, typewriters, computers, anything they could get their hands on, effectively enriching themselves. Sandinistas argue that as revolutionaries, they had not been paid much money and effectively had almost no wealth, and that this was compensation for their efforts in the past. However, many of the leading Sandinistas became millionaires overnight and undermined their grassroots believers. Having given up this moral authority, they've instead have been forced to engage in more heavy-handed tactics to stay in power. For instance, Ortega has made his wife the vice president and in 2014 effectively abolished term limits for the presidency. This paved the way for Ortega's re-election in 2016, where he won 72% of the vote, but only 30% of Nicaraguans voted in that presidential election. The ongoing civil unrest and violence has plummeted the amount of foreign investment and tourists, which has severely affected the economy and made it harder and harder for him to hold on to power. This is a bad road for Ortega to take, as statistically speaking, when leaders opt to use force against peaceful protesters, they enter a dangerous path. Uh, since basically the end of the Cold War, any time a Latin American president who has come to power in a free and fair election has later used violence to quell uprisings, has usually become ousted soon after. The only exception to this would be Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, who went into rule for 11 years after using deadly force against protesters during a 2002 coup attempt. We'll keep you updated with any new information from the country. Now to this week's deeper dive. This week we're going to look at Made in China 2025. This policy put forward by Xi Jinping was approved by China's State Council in 2015. It's effectively a blueprint for Beijing's plan to transform the country into a high-tech powerhouse that will dominate advanced industries like robotics and information technology. China's doing this because it's reaching the point where its wages are getting higher and higher. Now, part of this is because the country is becoming more affluent, but it's also because they have a constrained labor market as they have a demography that is shrinking over time as there are far fewer younger people than there are older people. And the idea is to basically end up doing the same thing that South Korea, Japan, and Germany do. The idea that you want to keep moving up the value-added chain and be making more and more high-tech equipment so you don't end up just being a standard industrialized country that is just putting out new manufacturing products and isn't able to keep climbing up further and further. However, from the international relations perspective, this is a potential problem because it looks like China is trying to supplant the current winners in this area, places like South Korea, Japan, Germany, the US. Furthermore, Made in China 2025 calls for self-sufficiency in this regard, which means China would rely less on the international sphere, which gives people cause for concern as if China 
is reliant less on international space, it gives more freedom to act there without feeling like it's going to harm its interests or that someone's going to use leverage that it has over China to force its hand on a particular issue. Made of China 2025 lays out targets for achieving 70% self-sufficiency in certain things like aerospace equipment, telecommunications equipment. This could mean real trouble for other exporters of these goods as they would then have to compete with China. And on top of that, they would no longer be able to export into China as China would be self-sufficient in this regard. And so the reason why this is so important is for high-tech goods, a lot of uh, supply chains are at work. So it's the idea that we've discussed previously that different countries will work in different areas and they'll come together to make one product. This means that they're economically interdependent and it helps provide a reason to maintain good relations and maintain peace throughout the world. If China is able to put most, if not all, of the supply chain within its own country, it'll no longer be vulnerable to external threats of people saying that we're going to cut off uh, access to a particular good or product. And it means China will be less and less integrated into the world. In addition, China's track record of subsidizing their own industries means it'll be hard to compete with these industries and it may not be a fair playing field. And this plan has in part fueled this desire from China to gain access to intellectual property abroad, which is part of the current trade war dispute between China and the US over this issue of intellectual property theft. Now, there's still an argument to be made that China subsidizing new industries is not particularly a bad thing to do. You can make it under the infant industry argument in economics, the idea that when an industry is just starting out in a country, but it has global competition that is already fixed there and has that kind of first mover advantage is that they're strong, they're powerful, they have suppliers and consumers already set up. They have a lot more power in that particular market and they can use that potentially crush that infant industry. And so it makes sense to potentially protect that industry, provide it subsidies, provide it protections until it can get up and running. However, the extent of Chinese support for its state-owned enterprises in the past lends one to believe that it may not well be a fair playing field and instead it's going to be using these to gain market advantage for those firms and to beat out other firms in an unfair way. Part of this attempt to gain intellectual property and technology can be exemplified in a particular example. Fujian Grand Chips, a purportedly private Chinese company, uh, attempted to acquire a German machine maker, Axitron, in 2016. Right before an attempt at a public takeover of Axitron, another Fujian-based company, Sanan Optoelectronics, canceled a critical order from Axitron on somewhat dubious grounds. This caused its stock to tumble and meant that Fujian Grand Chips could swoop in and take over the company. Both Fujian Grand Chip and Sanan Optoelectronics shared a common investor, an important national semiconductor fund controlled by Beijing. This acquisition was stopped at the last moment by the US government on national security grounds. But it shows how Beijing can go beyond free and fair market forces to try and gain an advantage in the international space. The same occurs with technology transfer agreements where if you want to take your company and gain access to the valuable Chinese domestic economy and the market there, you will have to agree to sign over potentially a lot of your intellectual property, which the Chinese government can then use to build up its own technology and eventually replace you as the main source for that particular technology. I'm going to give you a statistic as why China needs to do this so much and why it's so important for the government. 
currently China accounts for 60% of global demand for semiconductors, but it only produces 13% of the global supply. And so China is very vulnerable to external supplies cutting off uh, vital equipment and technology into the country. And they've used the German government's uh, Industry 4.0 development plan as the kind of the basis and inspiration for this idea. Industry 4.0 refers to the so-called fourth industrial revolution. The idea is that the first was mechanization and water and steam power. The second, mass production, assembly lines and electricity. The third being computers and automation. And now the fourth would be cyber physical systems. The idea of the, the cloud, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, nanotechnology, quantum computing and the like. However, German businesses disagree that China's 2025 plan is the same as Germany's Industry 4.0. First is that Germany's state subsidies are much smaller and that mainly focused on basic research. And in addition, Germany lacks targets for replacing imports or quotas for indigenous production. And finally, that the economy in Germany is open to outside participation, where in China, it's far harder to gain access to their economy. And so you can see there are good reasons for China to pursue this policy. As discussed earlier, it's highly dependent on external sources for important technologies like semiconductors. It doesn't want to get caught in the middle income trap, the idea that countries, developing countries often reach a point in the value added chain and then stop as they're unable to compete with, say, South Korea and Japan and Germany and whatnot, and they can never get up there and keep gaining uh, growth after this initial spurt. They get up to kind of catch up to the other countries, their mechanization and whatnot. But then the other larger already in place countries use their market forces and market power to prevent them going any further. And China wants to avoid getting stuck down there. And finally, just because South Korea and Japan or Germany and the US have high-tech industries, why can't China have its own high-tech industry? And of course, for those countries, it's in their own interest to make sure that they're one of the few countries that are able to do it so that they gain more benefit and that there's less competition in the market. And so you can see how these countervailing forces and the different interests of each group, you're seeing how they're using power in different ways to try and get ahead. You've seen China using these various tactics to try and bring technology home. And in the reverse, we've seen these other countries trying to prevent companies from investing uh, in Europe, in the US, to take technology home. And part of President Trump's trade war has been based around the rhetoric that China is taking technology home and that it's unfair competition. As an aside, there's also a soft power aspect to this. Part of soft power is the positive reflection that your products worldwide reflect on you and your, your corporations reflect on you as a country. And so you think of Apple, Microsoft, Hollywood. These have strong associations with the USA. And the same with IKEA with Sweden, Toyota and Nintendo in Japan, and Champagne with France. However, China hasn't been able to develop that same kind of name recognition yet for high quality products that you might think when you think high quality, you think maybe Japan or Germany. And China wants to take that on as well and build more soft power through having high quality products that the rest of the world wants to gain and have access to. So you can also see Made in China 2025 is also a, not only a hard power approach of gaining more technology and advancing the economy to be more powerful, but also there's a soft power aspect to it where China is wanting to develop its reputation abroad by improving itself and becoming one of the world leaders in advanced technology. And so the Made in China 2025 policy will likely be very important in the near future as it's part of the nexus of this trade war. The reasoning behind the trade war is to stop this approach. 
And so there's that countervailing force on one side where it's trying to be stopped. But at the same time, it's so important to China and the future of China to not get stuck playing second fiddle to the rest of the world and just being a, uh, a large consumer base and production for the rest of the world that is used and not allowed to reach those higher tiers of the value added chain. So it'd be very interesting to watch and we'll bring any new updates as we have them. That's it for this week's podcast. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw. As always, you can find our website at envoyfpa.org. We have new articles being written all the time and they should be coming up soon. You can find us on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And if you have any questions, requests, comments, feel free to send them to our email at envoyuwa at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll be bringing you more news and analysis real soon.